welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Kelly. And this month we have a special double edition. This is in no small part due to a little bit of a post-coronavirus lag, but also us catching up with other things that have been going on during the big pandemic time in the UK. Now, understanding that this pandemic is nowhere near over, and many of you listening are still in the midst of it, and our thoughts are with you. But today we'll go through the blog posts that we have for June and July, so plenty to talk about. So Simon, let's get straight into it. And why don't we actually start off with a bit of coronavirus? We'll do this a little bit out of order, but let's talk about the recovery trial, because we've had several posts about different drugs within that. And I think it's really worth us concentrating on that a little bit to just go through how that recovery trial is working and then some of the results. So as our resident professor, well, one of three resident professors, can you talk to us a little bit about a platform trial and how recovery is working? And then we've got some data on hydroxychloroquine and dexamethasone to go through. The platform sort of stroke adaptive trial design is essentially that we've got one study which runs for a long period of time. The methods of actually how the study recruits patients and what the outcomes are are fairly well set. But you can put different treatments in and out of the trial. So in the case of recovery, we started off with four different potential treatments for coronavirus. And as and when we have enough patients in the trial to come to a conclusion, and that's monitored by the Data Safety Committee, we can then have a look at the results and decide whether or not we should adopt something or reject it. And you're quite right. This month, we've seen the early results from hydroxychloroquine, and we've also seen the results from dexamethasone. And as far as my reading goes, the results for those two drugs are rather different. So hydroxychloroquine still being used, as far as I can tell, across the world by some people. But the recovery trial seems to suggest that that's probably not got any benefit. And also there is a risk of side effects. Hydroxychloroquine is one of the, what I've put into the group of antiviral drugs. So these are drugs which are you know, designed to combat the virus. And there's a few of them around. And so far, none of them have been particularly dramatically successful, certainly in hospital-based trials. So recovery is a hospital-based trial. It's patients who are admitted to hospital. And in that group, um, in the recovery trial, certainly, they studied oh, about 1,542 patients were given hydroxychloroquine and 3,132 had normal care. So randomized between the two, not placebo controlled, and it's an open label trial. So, you know, there are potential biases in here. But at 28 day mortality, there was no real benefit at all, actually. And in fact, the mortality was slightly higher in the hydroxychloroquine group, 25.7% versus 23.5% with uh, normal care. And non-statistical difference, but the likelihood that HCQ makes a difference to patients is really small. And there were more adverse events in the patients who got the drug, which is what you would expect. On the basis of this, you can pretty well say that in patients who require admission to hospital, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. That's where I stand on this. That's what I think we should be doing. There's a load of debate going on still, as you say, across the water, about whether hydroxychloroquine given at this stage is too late. At that stage, when you're coming into hospital, maybe it's the autoimmune response, which is causing you problems, and maybe it's too late to have an antiviral. So there still needs to be other studies done in other patient populations. But if as you are an ED condition and you're admitting someone to hospital, it makes no sense at this stage to give them hydroxychloroquine. And so as part of that trial, does that mean they've now stopped the hydroxychloroquine arm or is it ongoing to get more data? No, it stopped. So they stopped recruiting. They actually published the data before they had all of the patients had actually achieved their 28 day outcome. And when I say published, they released this by press release. It's really important. We've not seen the full paper yet. And we desperately, desperately, desperately need to see that. And, and I know it's coming. I happen to know it's coming and it'll be out very shortly. 
it's a preprint thing, but knowing what we do about the trial, knowing what the platform adaptive trial basis is, I think I'm fairly confident that this is a good result. So that's one side of the recovery trial that's been published in the recent months. But on the other side, we've got dexamethasone, and that seemed decidedly more positive. So positive, in fact, that that, again, I read about first on the BBC News app. This seems like a treatment that might have some effect. It does. But again, we just need to get our head around the the difference in these drugs. As I said, the hydroxychloroquine is the antiviral group of drugs. Dexamethasone is more about modulating the immune system. And so they're really a very different approach to how we treat patients with COVID-19. And in this study, I'll give you the headline results for starters. By this stage, actually, they've recruited more patients into the trial. So the numbers are slightly different to hydroxychloroquine. So this was 2,104 patients given DEX versus 4,321 given normal care. And overall, the mortality was better if you're given DEX. So 21.6% of patients died versus 24.6%. Worth noting that these are still very high mortalities. So if you're admitted to hospital, your risk is, you know, one in four to one in three people who are admitted to hospital with COVID-19 die. It's a serious disease. But there was some differentiation between whether or not you were ventilated, whether you required oxygen, or whether you were just admitted and didn't require oxygen. And the greatest benefit for dexamethasone was in those patients who were on ITU requiring invasive um, support. In that group, the mortality for DEX was 29% versus 40.7% for normal care. And if you required oxygen, 21.5% versus 25%. So still quite a big difference. If you were admitted to hospital and you didn't need oxygen, and that's quite, in my experience, I'm always questioned why would you be admitted if you didn't need oxygen? What else were you getting? And there wasn't a benefit. So in that group of patients, it's not really suggested that we give it. But for me, what this is telling me at this stage, and this is not proven, it's not guaranteed, but it's a it's a mindset that I've got at the moment, is maybe the antivirals, certainly in hospital-based patients, aren't going to be effective because maybe we've missed the boat. And maybe we are going to have to think about using immunomodulatory drugs. Dexamethasone is a bit of a blunt instrument because it just suppresses everything. But there's lots of trials going on now looking at more targeted drugs that just interfere with either IL-1 or IL-6, for example. And I think it'd be really interesting to see how those come about and also to see the other stuff that's going to come out of recovery. Uh, We already have a press release on Kalitra. I've seen the paper for that. That's coming out soon. Sorry, Lapinavir, Ritonavir, I shouldn't use the brand names. And we've also got the trial still running on convalescent plasma and tocilizumab, which is one of these more selective immunomodulatory drugs. So lots of coronavirus stuff going on, but it's not the only evidence-based medicine that's going on at the moment. We've had a couple of other things that we've been talking about on the blog site. And Holtit was a big trial talking about the use of tranexamic acid in upper GI bleeding. And Chris Gray did a review of this, lots of this on FOMED sites and blog posts. Big trial, big news. Everyone thought TXA is the answer to all bleeding. It's part of major hemorrhage protocols. And yet here we go. It didn't seem to have much of an effect. No. And to be honest, I was... was PI in our hospital for Holtis. And I was truly equivocal about whether or not this would work because although we've seen TXA work in a variety of other bleeding settings, notably trauma, GI hemorrhage is different for lots of different reasons. It's It may not be an arterial bleed. A lot of these patients have got gastritis and, and sort of a more diffuse type bleeding issue. A lot of them got underlying coagulopathies before you start. Um, so the varices patients and things like that. Varices themselves are venous bleeding rather than arterial bleeding. And often the patients, when you see them with GI bleeding, they're not necessarily seen in those first hours after the injury. 
And we do know that in the trauma trials that there was a strong association with benefit if it's given early. So the fact that in this study, they showed that if you looked at death from bleeding within five days, it was 4% versus 4%. And this is 12,009 patients. So a big trial, multi-center trials. It's, it's well-powered. Even if you looked at all-cause mortality, it was, what, 4.2% versus 4% placebo. So there's really no evidence at all that in GI bleeding that TXA makes a difference. And that, I think that's good. I love science when it tells us that things don't work. Uh, people ask us, you know, we, we've always been sort of fairly strong advocates of TXA and trauma. Aren't you disappointed by this? No. Not disappointed at all. It's a brilliant trial. It's given us a result. We now know what we're doing. Fantastic. And I think we are getting more and more science as this coronavirus thing is becoming more at the forefront of people's minds. And evidence-based medicine is still there. And perhaps we should just mention now a podcast and paper you did with Dan Horner and Rick Boddy and Kevin McQuay-Jones, you published in the EMJ, about how we approach evidence-based medicine. We've talked about this before on both the podcast and the blog, but there is a paper out there in the EMJ, and you did do a podcast with Ken Milne of the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, just about how quickly we adopt things and how evidence-based medicine is important still. And I think that's something that we do need to bear in mind as we go on, because coronavirus isn't going away and more and more of these treatments are going to be tried, released, and then publicised and used. If you've got time, please go and re do read the paper. I'm kind of fairly proud of it. I think it's brought together a lot of the ideas that we've had over the last 20 to 30 years the blog and the podcast we did with Ken Mill, Ken's a brilliant interviewer, he's brought out some really interesting points. But fundamentally, we absolutely need to practice evidence-based medicine principles now. We have the opportunity. We've got a single disease out there. We've got the opportunity to recruit patients to lots of trials. We've got opportunities to analyse the data. Everybody's focused on this. If we can't do EVM now, then perhaps we never could or never can. The phrase that we sort of got in our heads out of this is this concept of evidence-based agility in that with a fast moving disease with lots and lots of data coming out we need to have our minds and our practice agile enough to respond and do the best that we can at the moment we're treating patients based on the best available evidence at that time but with the full knowledge that it could well change next week and we could be doing something different you know take hydroxychloroquine if somebody comes out next week and says i've done this big rct which shows if you take hydroxychloroquine early then it's beneficial, I'll change my mind and I'll be happy to do so. But for now, stick with the evidence. And this can only be a good thing for medicine in general, can't it? That we move away from the, well, I read about this in the Oxford Handbook when I was at medical school, so I'm going to stick with it now because it must be true. We've got to learn to just dodge around with the evidence. We'll learn more things. What we did 10 years ago is very different to what we're doing now. I remember very clearly when I was a house officer, which is slightly more than 10 years ago, uh, sitting there with a doxapram infusion with a patient with COPD overnight. It's one of my biggest house officer, as we used to call it, memories. Um, but I, I mentioned doxapram to anyone now. They have no idea what I'm talking about. And we've just got to be able to move with the times. And I don't, I think the thing you're saying is so important is that that's not a failure. In fact, that's a success, but it does take effort. That's the big deal. It takes effort to relearn stuff that you've already learned. And these old dogs, we need to learn some new tricks sometimes. Oh, yeah. And actually, a big thing about that is actually not just learn new tricks. We have to be better at unlearning stuff. So what we're doing now, at some point, many of it, we're going to have to let go. And it's well described in the literature that we're not good at letting go of stuff. So in order to adopt something new, you have to let go of the past. If you want this educational theory, it's Kurt Lewin's change cycle. Go and look it up and freeze, unfreeze and all that kind of stuff. But yes, learn to let go. Learn to embrace the new. Learn to let go of the old. It's like fashion. 
Now on the blog site over the last couple of months, we've also had a few posts about how we can use technology as part of both medicine and medical management and also education. And the first one way back at the beginning of June was about major incidents, an app that Pete Hume and colleagues have put together. Now this isn't a St. Emily's project, but I know that you've been closely involved, so I know quite a lot about it. And so the description of, of how that's come about is really interesting. Is this something you started using in your practice? Yeah, so we're running with this in our department now. So quick declaration of interest. I know about this. I'm not involved in the development of it, but there is a potential financial interest um, in it for the people who did develop it. Having said that and just declared that, I do think this is a good idea. Um, it all goes back to the Arena Grande bombing in Manchester on 22nd of May 2017. We used as a department, as many departments have done since for major instance, and um, we use things like WhatsApp to uh, get in touch with people and to coordinate what's going on. The problem with that, of course, is that the WhatsApp only works if you've got it switched on. And many people will have on their phones a nighttime mode so that you go to bed at night and you don't get it pinging all the way through the night, which if you're trying to trying to get people to respond to something at three o'clock in the morning may be a problem. So what Pete's done with um, a commercial company is develop an app which will, it doesn't matter if your phone's on mute, doesn't matter if it's on silent, doesn't matter if you've got your WhatsApp turned off or anything like that. If we press the button to say there's a major instance or is a major instance standby, it will sound off on every phone which is connected to that app on, on that particular group password. We've tested it a few times now. It's really good. I've got to say that I don't know what he did with the, the sirens, but you aren't going to sleep through this. So it's a really good idea for those emergency situations where you need to make sure that everybody gets the message at the same time and not just those who are awake. I think this is a really good move. So worth investigating. There's all these technologies and I think some will keep going and survive and it, the survival of the fittest, isn't it? Many will keep going, but it's important that people keep trying new things so that we can give these a go. And the more people who give it a go, the more we're going to know about whether they work or not. We also introduced the St. Emily's lesson plans this month. There's a separate podcast about those, so we won't go on about them too much, but this is a big project to try and help us with learning in the post-COVID era. So using a bit of educational theory and also lots of FOMED resources, uh, none of them of which are password protected, all of which are available to everybody, and a way in which that you can use these in what we've called lesson plans, like a classroom environment, but actually done virtually. There's about, I think, 20 of them on there now. There's an entire induction course and we're writing more as time goes on. So do have a look. And we'd love to hear if you're using those as part of your induction and part of your education and anything we could do differently to make them more usable. And you've had quite a lot of help from local people in Southampton, but you're keen to get more involved. Very much so. So uh, at UHS, my department in Southampton, we've been putting these together and we're using this as part of our induction. There is a, a vague plan that we may be able to do something nationally where we could run these as part of a St. Emlyn's team. It's a St. Emlyn's project, but yeah, there's four or five different authors, all from Southampton. But I've had interest from other places too, Oxford and other hospitals who'd like to join in and write lesson plans. It's not hard. There is an easy crib sheet to fill in. So if you've got a topic that you'd love to write one of these for, you've seen some good FOMED resources, just get in touch and then you can be on St. Emlyn's. You'll have a little thing to add to your CV if that's important to you. But also more importantly, you'll be able to bring FOMED resources easily to the people who are going to benefit from them the most. And I think that's the biggest thing for this is some people don't even know that this stuff's out there, but this is one way of getting it to a wider audience. And it's probably also worth mentioning with some of the other hats I've got on that um, Arkham Learning are going to try and do something similar. They've got an induction booklet, which is not bad. We've got links out to that. We're quite happy to support colleagues. 
And also don't forget the bubbles have um, put something not dissimilar together as well for pediatric emergency medicine. And again, we're quite happy to link across to those. We're all part of the same FOMED family. And uh, where we see good resources, we're quite happy to, to point people in those directions. Absolutely. This is all one big educational effort. Again, a bit like the apps we mentioned, some of these things will work and survive and thrive and others will just gradually diminish over time. But we've all got to try new stuff. And so please do have a look. And then one of the last things published at the very end of July was a little project I've done at Southampton to add into the education, which is just using the screensavers on your PCs to add in some educational messages. So it's I've called it background learning. This is a really simple thing you can do if you can access the IT. And most of our computers in our department are not linked up to a central sort of system. So I was able to go around and alter them all. So I just put a slideshow as a background with brief educational messages that come up in the background of that screensaver and it's there all the time it's not just when the computer goes to sleep and I think our doctors and nurses are finding it really useful so it's about a hundred slides and I've shared all of those so you can use ours if you want or you can make your own but it's all about these simple ways to get education part of your everyday working and I'd really again love to hear if people are using it and how they find that's working in these new times we're going to have to work out different ways to do education and to make sure that we're all engaged and keeping up to date. I think it's similar to the themes that we've seen in some of the papers that have been published around, um, or certainly posters I've seen at conferences, where people have put educational resources on doors or in the toilets or next to the blood gas machine or anywhere where people might congregate for a small period of time. So I think that's, it's in that general theme, which I think is brilliant. I'm not sure that we in our hospital can get into IT and do this without sort of some special dispensation. So that's a little project for me to get going. If you can do this, I think it's a brilliant idea. I think getting those messages out, and particularly from a departmental specialty specific perspective, I think is a really great way to engage all your staff and not just the junior doctors, but also your consultant colleagues and your nurses and your AHPs and everybody else. There's a description on there of how we managed to do it on our computers. It really leads you through step by step. So so give it a go. So Simon, I'm just bobbing around a bit here. We're not going in exact date order, but I'm feeling a bit fruity. It's summertime, the sun's shining. And one of the other posts you've done this month was the top 10 trauma papers for the Liverpool Trauma Seminar. People seem to love this sort of stuff where you go through a top 10 of things that have come out, explaining the take home points. Yeah, well, it's great. The Liverpool trauma seminars were originally going to be sort of the northern version of the London trauma conference, um, if you like, which has been you know tremendously successful. And, and both of us have been there um, several times. Great, great conference in London. But we thought we might try and do something in the north. So Simon Mercer and colleagues over at Aintree um, have led this. And they had a great program, really great program organised for, for two days over the summer. COVID stuffed it. So instead of abandoning it, they've gone for regular seminars every Tuesday and Thursday throughout the summer. You can go onto the website and you can get into those seminars and you can download the free, free to access, which is great. But I did the top 10. Um, should I just give you the, the headlines, if you like? The ones that I picked out. And it's always tricky with trauma because you always think there should be more papers out there, but there aren't. Um, there should be more high quality papers out there. I always think it's a bit of a disappointment, but really the top 10, I would say, I would like you to go and have a look at. So number one, go and have a look at Crash 3 if you've not looked at it already. The big RCT of head injury and TXA, very controversial. My feeling is that on the balance of probabilities, it's a good idea to give um, TXA to patients who've got blood on their CT who've got, or who've got a depressed GCS, but who aren't GCS3 or got fixed dilated pupils. And in those groups of patients, and you can see more of the explanation of why picking those groups on the, on the blog site, I think it's a reasonable thing to do and probably has an effect. So go and have a look at that. Lots of controversy, but you know, I'm not getting into that today. 
Uh, second paper, there was the big um, or fairly large multi-center trial of vena cava filters in severely injured patients to prevent things like PE. Um, why are we putting um, vena cava filters in rather than giving low weight heparin? Well, the answer is because there's lots of trauma patients who you don't want to anticoagulate because they're already bleeding. So putting an IVC filter in seemed like a really good idea to prevent deaths. Unfortunately, it doesn't. It seems to produce, reduce the number of people who might have PEs, but unfortunately, there's no no detectable effect really in terms of mortality. So they've been um, suggested we shouldn't be doing that anymore. Uh, then there was the AVERT shock trial looking at low-dose vasopressors in patients with hemorrhagic shock. I like this one because it's paradox. Uh, we've always been told you can't give vasopressors to people who are in um, traumatic shock. Well, this study slightly challenges that and maybe thinks a little bit more about what they do in some of the continental resuscitation services. Um, so sort of using low doses of vasopressin, maybe because these patients become vasodilated. Who knows? It's a pilot study, not for prime time yet, but really interesting. Um, and then there were a couple of papers reanalyzing both the PAMPA and the COMBAT trials. Those were two RCTs of use of FFP prior to blood or with very, very early on in transfusion in major trauma patients. And when you combine the data between the two, it does seem that the biggest effect in terms of time is in patients who require a long pre-hospital time. So the longer your pre-hospital time, the more benefit there is to giving plasma early, which is good. Um, and the second one was a, a look at calcium. Again, a reanalysis which showed that if you give FFP pre-hospital, the patients often come in hypocalcemic. You should know that. So we should be managing it but also that the degree of hypocalcemia has a significant effect on mortality, whether they got the FFP or not. So the message out of that is we should probably be, well, certainly there's an association between hypercalcemia and death, which to me means at the moment we should be managing it. Now, whether or not it will have an effect, I don't know, because correlation is not causation, but certainly look out for hypercalcemia. And I know that Karen Brohe has been on Twitter recently talking about hypercalcemia being one of the new triad of deaths from trauma. And then there was a paper about looking at the injury severity score and the need for life-saving interventions in patients with trauma. And again, you'd expect, wouldn't you, that ISS would be associated with the need for more interventions, life-saving ones. Well, not really is the answer to this. And that's the problem, I think, with a lot of trauma services is that they measure their outcomes against the anatomical injury and not how much resuscitation the patient needed. And to me, the mark of a good service and the mark of a good organization is one that can manage the resuscitation because we can't really change the injury that's already happened. So we need to think about different ways of looking at that. Then there's some interesting papers looking at early and pre-hospital trauma deaths, suggesting that there are still patients out there who could survive with good quality care. So the, the, the trauma service, we've not got a perfect trauma service yet. There is still work to be done. And then finally, looking at whole blood transfusion does it make a difference? Everybody says that whole blood is fantastic. We should be doing it rather than using components, but actually the evidence out there is pretty weak for it. So we do need those RCTs, which are currently running to tell us whether whole blood is right in trauma. So I think that was my whistle-stop tour. There's a lot more information on the blog. Everything you needed to know about trauma in approximately... 90 seconds. That's exactly what St. Emelins is good for. Lots and lots of information there. Do have a look at the post on the blog site so you can just read a bit more into those trials that Simon's just been talking about. And we'll keep talking about other stuff beyond coronavirus. Although let's just think about what you you had a conversation with Roberto in Italy again, Simon, as part of uh, this month's blog. Uh, how's he getting on? He's doing all right, actually. And I think their services are doing okay. 
but that's probably because they they've managed it and the blog post is largely about how did their service come together to support each other and to support their staff and to support their service to make sure that they did have downtime that they did talk about things that they did manage for want of a better word and I know we don't necessarily always like this word on St Emlyn's but managing the well-being of their service and their staff but they've done it overtly they've done it explicitly they've done it with a process and I think there are some lessons in there that we can take away as well and then finally one more a journal club post from Laura about haloperidol for headaches we're always looking for that solution to headaches aren't we they, they can be so it's a bit like back pain or toothache or all of these other things that people come to us that we just sometimes feel a little bit helpless with there are some things we can do but we see a lot of patients with headache, many of whom will not have many of whom will not have a significant cause that we need to treat. But the headache is disabling. And this looked at the use of haloperidol. The thing I seem to take out from all of this was that this was a randomized controlled trial, but they weren't really comparing the haloperidol to another treatment. That seemed not the best way forward if you've got patients in pain. No. So this is one of those trials which sort of irritate me to some extent. You're absolutely right. It's a Patients who've got pain, which you and I have talked about many times, but such an important issue for the patient to manage the pain. And so they've compared IV haloperidol against placebo. And I just, I, I just find that A, it's not going to tell us what the answer is, because when would we ever give nothing for, well, except in this trial, when we ever give nothing for pain, is it any better than what we do now? Is it better than paracetamol? I don't know. It's not really told us this. And there's a number of trials out there that do this. And it particularly irritates me when I see them around pain. And it particularly, particularly irritates me when I see it around pain in children. And believe it or not, there are RCTs out there that compare an analgesic against nothing for severe pain in children. And I just think, who's on these ethics committees? What's going on? So that is a whiz through two months worth of St. Emlyn's blog post content. We've covered an awful lot from coronavirus through trauma, through educational theory, onto some evidence-based medicine. I hope that's been really useful for you. We're coming up to that great time of year, which I think is both exciting and ever so slightly scary in equal measure, where we welcome a huge new cohort of doctors in the UK into the emergency department. At Southampton, I think we're going to have something like 50 new doctors through various different tiers, all arriving on the first Wednesday in August. And to try and introduce those guys and get them part of the team fast so that the care on August the 5th is the same as the care on August the 4th. It's a huge challenge. It's one that really invigorates and excites me, although it can be hard work. I think it's really worth investing in. Couldn't agree more. It's always lovely to see people come into the specialty. It's also sad to see those who are rotating on. Thanks to all those people who worked so hard over this year in particular, and welcome to all those who are joining us in August. So that's it from the St. Emmeline's podcast for this month. We'll be back with you very soon. Do keep an eye on the blog site. If you're using the lesson plans over the next few weeks, do tell us how they're going. And if you want to write one, you're more than welcome. We'd really love to hear from you. Just be in contact via the website or Twitter. And more than anything, try and get out there, enjoy some of our English sunshine if you're able to, and keep enjoying your emergency medicine. Have fun, everybody.